AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for December 29th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today, I'm joined uh, via webcast uh, with Jim Clausing. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Good. Hope everybody had a great Christmas. Yes, it was great. <laughs> and on the couch, we have uh, Matt Kaiser. Hey, Matt, how you doing? I got everything I wanted for Christmas. Wow, that's... Oh, yeah. Uh, I can't say that much, but in any event... And we also have Stan Nurlov at the end of the couch here. Welcome back, Stan. Thank you. Uh, happy coming New Year, guys. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm John Hogaboom. So let's uh, jump into the first story. The first story I thought was kind of interesting, and you were looking at this one, Stan. Um, so there's some Outlook letter bomb exploit. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, it's, uh, these exploits actually used to be a lot more frequent back, yeah. back in the day. I feel like I haven't seen one of these in a while. So. This, this actually another, uh, last week I mentioned I have a favorite exploit, and that was the, uh, uh, the FireEye one. I like this one too. <laughs> you just like them all. I like exploits. I'm really <laughs> always very interested in how, how things work and, and how to exploit things. So the way this one works is you receive an email, and you either read it, you're just reading the email, or it's in your preview, I guess, in your preview, preview pane. And only works with Outlook, so that's you got to have Outlook. Is it a specific version of Outlook, or um, I'm not sure. I think it's pretty much everything that's not patched, uh, okay. you know, like in the 2010, like something recent. Okay. So you have you're reading it or whatever, and as soon as you're reading it, uh, that's that triggers the exploit. So if someone, if you have preview mode on, and someone sends you an email, you don't even have to be at your desk. It could just no. You gotta. Well, I guess if you kind of, I don't know how that works. I have mine turned off, so you gotta kind of. It's got to be in your preview window that preview window. So. Right. So that, okay. Yeah. So I think that might work. Okay. You don't yeah. even have to click anything. Really? Yeah. Okay. I bet you it would. Well, we should try it. Yeah, we'll, anyway. yeah, let's try it out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, what they, uh, I guess the security researcher, Hai Fei Li, um, she already submitted the bug to Microsoft and they got a patch out for it. Everybody should be patched by now. It came out like December 8th. Okay. Uh, the patches came out. So this went out in the last, whatever, yeah. Microsoft Tuesday patch exactly. bundle? Okay. Exactly. So most people should be patched by now, but for some reason you can't be patched. You know, there's some uh, mitigations that you got to take. And actually, I encourage everybody. We got the links here. Read the paper because it's actually a very good write-up, and it, it details exactly. If you're like me and you want to know exactly how these exploits work, it details the exploit and why these things are the way they are. But the crux of it is that um, there's a specific type of email format that. Um, Microsoft can accept Microsoft Outlook. Mm -hmm. So usually when you send an email with Microsoft Outlook or receive one, there's there's parts to it. There's the plain text part, there's the HTML part, there might be like a rich text part, and then there's this other TNEF part that potentially could be there. I've never seen it before myself, but I guess it's an extension that's allowable. When you have that, inside of that you can have an OLE object, and we've heard things about OLE object. That's basically a way to take another program uh, and put it inside of your like Word document or so you can put like an Excel spreadsheet inside of an email and it'll be like the Excel file or that Excel object, that table, and when you click on it, you'll be able to do Excel things with that table. Right, right. 
So that's what the OLE functionality allows. It also allows you to put like flash in there. And we all know that flash has lots of vulnerabilities around, right? Right. So historically, it's historically, a yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, you, I'm sure you can. It's why Adobe is dropping the, the format. So. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. It's uh, it's not surprising. It's a very uh, complicated format. I've actually looked into it, and there's lots of places where you can make implementational mistakes. So it's not a surprise to me that you know there's so many vulnerabilities out there because there's just so many ways to get that implementation wrong. But back to uh, the OLE object, you can include any type of OLE object, and if the person has that. Uh, com component stalled in their windows all they have to do is really like I said open the email and that everything works magically underneath to run that exploit for you hmm. so it's perfect for targeted you know phishing and things yeah, like that really. It, it really takes me back to probably like a few years ago a year or two ago where there was another vulnerability where like there was a picture you send the picture and then there was a problem in the picture processing framework underneath and just viewing that picture would trigger the exploit hmm. So things like that, I'm always uh, amazed by. And OLE has always been a problem because it's, it's this ability to take basically possibly executable code or components from other frameworks and include them into this. Um, so the way to get around it, disable preview mode, open all your emails in uh, text-only mode. Mm -hmm. And there's actually something even more drastic you can do. The details are in the paper, but it's basically disabling these COM or OLE objects from being opened by any Microsoft Office component. If you want, if you're interested in that, def definitely recommend reading the paper. It'll show you exactly which registry key to change. Interesting. So it, the the solution is simple. You read email the way God intended it, is plain text. Uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I do, and I have my preview pane turned off as well. Well, I still hang on to the fact that I like to sometimes bold things, or I want to highlight something because people don't read my emails. So that I, I typically have to like highlight the important parts. But maybe I can just capsule it or something in the future. And, and now you know, John, I, why I don't respond to your bolded yeah, emails. Yeah, there you go. Because they all look the same to me. Right, right. Because, <laughs> yeah, all the bold gets removed when you read it. Uh, in any event, interesting one. I was trying to think, like, the last time I remember even something like even remotely similar to this, I want to say, was it the I love you virus or with Melissa or one of those? What was the one that... There was some virus like way back, a long and time ago, where just receiving the email and opening it, you could um, trigger code. And uh, I don't remember. I, I, I know that was picture one virus. was a big one. I didn't think it was that way back, but you know, time has been flying by while I've been working here. So it could have Anyway, <laughs> could be. Everything old is new again. But uh, good attack surface. Everybody's pretty much got email. Uh, not necessarily that everybody's using Outlook, but a lot of people are. So. A uh, good one to keep an eye out for. And like you said, as long as you've got all the recent patches from this past month, uh, you should be covered. So it's good. Uh, so moving on to the next story. Uh, Jim, you were going to talk about this one. Uh, going to talk about Hashcat? Yeah. Uh, those of us who you know do pen testing or forensics got a, an early Christmas gift this year. Hashcat and OCL Hashcat are... Two tools that you know, pen testers and forensic investigators like myself use quite a bit to uh, basically to, to try to crack passwords. Yeah. And these two tools, until recently, have only been available as, as binaries. 
the one of the nice things about them is they take advantage of GPUs, graphic processing units, to speed up the the computation to try to do the cracking. But on December fourth, the uh, the creator of the tools, uh, Adam, uh, announced that he was making them available uh, as open source. Source is now available, and so I thought this was really good news. Um, you know, one of the one of the issues in the past has been, um, you know, if you if there was another hash algorithm that you wanted to incorporate, there was really no way to do it. Like I said, you got it as a mm-hmm. as a binary, so you could send off to the the author and ask him to implement it. But um, now, if you, there's another hash algorithm that you want to try to use, write it yourself. Add it to the you know the project is on GitHub. You know, the, one of the other issues was there was no support for um, Mac OS ten. You know, now if somebody wants to write that, they can do it. So I, I was really excited to see that this is now open source. Yeah, I um, I guess for maybe for the uninitiated, it'd be good to explain. So Hashcat, for those who aren't familiar with it, um, a lot of time, or well, most of the time, when you have password databases for an application, they don't store the password in the database. What they store is some hash representation in the database. So when you log in, you type your password in, they take what you type in, they try to hash it again. If it matches the hash that they stored in the database, then you know you've got the right password and they let you in. So a lot of times we talked about this on shows in the press where people get big dumps of databases. So we talked about uh, a lot of times people are scanning uh, for database ports and trying to break into databases or they find SQL injections and they get big dumps of database passwords. Uh, But when they get those dumps, they're usually getting the password hashes, which aren't the passwords themselves. So the bad guy needs to figure out, well, what is the password hash? That's where Hashcat and OCL Hashcat comes in. And you could use that to, um, to basically try a lot of password combinations, and it can really quickly compute the hashes for those and see if it matches ones that you have in your dump that you got. And if it is, it'll report it to you. So um, uh, if you haven't used that tool, I would especially in pen test types of situations. If you are trying to uh, validate whether your users are using strong passwords, it's a good way to do that. And the OCL Hashcat, which uses the, um, the uh, video card uh, as part of its processing, the CPUs on there is really fast. Plus, I would say also, I've used Hashcat quite a bit, and I, I think it's a great tool, so I'm encouraged by this too that it's open source. But it does have an extremely large set of hashes that it will support. So you're talking about if you want to add ones in that aren't, you know, aren't supported, unless you're doing something really strange or new in terms of a hashing algorithm, they have support for a lot of different things in there. Hundreds of different algorithms from what I remember. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, they do. But um, you know, now that it's open source, if you want to you know, in use some other external library. You know, it was almost impossible to link external libraries in before. Now, now it's much easier. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's good news. Um, that is a really good tool. So I would recommend people check it out if they haven't. So moving on to the next story, Matt, you've got something about PS4 hack. Yeah. What's this? 
story about? So this one's pretty neat. This has nothing to do with anybody DDoSing PlayStation Network or anything like that. Okay. I know we just Which went past we, yeah, Christmas. We see happen the, during the holidays, right? Sometimes. Th that happens sometimes. <laughs> but this has to do with actually hacking the PlayStation 4 console itself, okay. which I find, I find exciting. I've always been interested in that sort of thing. You know, I'm a bit of a gamer myself. So knowing a bit about the architecture of the system and, and ways to subvert that and things you can do to make your console do something it was never intended to do, I think that's pretty cool. So what we've got here is it's an exploit for the PS4. It doesn't get you complete access to the system, but it allows somebody to take a look at, among other things, take a look at the memory and running processes. So if you wanted to start looking at things that are running on the PlayStation in memory, mm -hmm. you might find some interesting things in there. You might find keys in memory that weren't stored, they were maybe stored encrypted, you couldn't get at them until the, the program ran them, or maybe pointers to interesting things that you might want to investigate if you're trying to get to you know, run arbitrary code all the time on the right, system. Right. And that's really the, the goal for somebody who wants to run like homebrew code on a, a system like the PlayStation 4. They're up, the objective is to get to run your own code and to be able to sign it with a signing key. Because most modern, I think all modern game systems require that the code be signed, which means the processors will not run the code unless it can validate that it came from some authorized source. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know about that. It's a good way to do it, although I guess if I wanted to write my own game, I would have to go to Sony or whatever and get a key, right, to sign it. That's you the would. idea. Yep. So they really have control over that. But all right, I mean, that's I, good could, I could go on a business model for that, but let's, yeah, let's yeah, stick yeah. to the, uh, <laughs> the way that, that works. So this 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 hacker named Seaturt was working with a number of other researchers and uh, found a way to get the WebKit browser process on the PlayStation 4. Mm -hmm. WebKit's kind of a very well-known, very a lot of different platforms use WebKit for the web browsing processes that they do. Right. Found a way to get that outside of a free BSD jail, and that sounds a little bit you know obtuse for some people, but basically it you were able to do extra things with the process as uh, uh, um, a privileged user rather than running it in a very limited space is basically how I would explain right. that. It's interesting that I didn't know until this that the PlayStation 4 actually a lot of the code is open source and it runs on a modified version of FreeBSD. Yeah, I didn't know that either. That's what I was just about to ask you. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So there's a couple modifications that they've done. It's not like stock, obviously, but... Um, there's a, a really interesting three-part write-up on C-Turret's website going through all the things that I assume he, and I don't know if it's a he or a she, but he was able to find out about the system and eventually get to the point where he is today. Uh, the, the only trick is that this vulnerability is in a very specific version of the software, version 1.76, and we're up at, I think, 3.11 as of the time of filming, but getting a hold of a PlayStation 4 with that specific firmware is probably going to be the hardest part mm. of doing this. Everything else has been released. Does the PlayStation 4 have some kind of auto-update or a way for you, like when you're in there, you can just update it? I don't have one. As soon so. as you connect it to the internet, it'll ask you, do you want to update? And in fact, some games I think will require you to, to put certain patches on. Oh, okay. And I know that if you want network functionality for for certain games, you absolutely have to patch. I'm not sure that means you know updating the games files, updating the systems files. I'm not clear on how that works, but it's very simple and, and automatic for you to do that sort of patching. Right, so. right. So, like I said, this isn't the end game. This is the start of of something much larger. I think for people who want to develop for the PlayStation 4, Seaturt's uh, actually stepped away after doing this. I think people have been asking questions about how do I pirate games using this. And to be fair, that's something that once you're able to run your own code on the system, you'd totally be able to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I think he was in he's it not mostly. not interested in that aspect of he's it. He's in it for, for the challenge and the, the conquering of the, you know, the, 
the barriers that were placed there and not to help someone steal right. a whole not bunch of PlayStation piracy, games. Right. More the technical aspects than the illegal aspects mm -hmm. or potentially ways to leverage it that way. Um, all right, interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have any other insights on that other, other than I was unaware that they run under FreeBSD, which I find interesting. Mm -hmm. um, from a performance standpoint, I find that interesting to, that they're using that. But uh, um, it sounded like it was a pretty good article, right? He talks about how to use soldering onto the traces and whatnot in oh, order no, to get... Oh, I was, no, I was talking with you before. I was actually, you might have... I was talking about a book that I, I really enjoyed. Oh, okay. There's okay. a book, um, Hacking the Xbox by Bunny Wang, which is one of the reasons I'm so excited about this sort of stuff, is that I read that book back when it came out. It's actually free. If you Google for Hacking the Xbox, you can get a free download of it now. Uh, but Bunny Wang did the original work on the, the Xbox console, um, and he had to do some hardware modification, make his own, his own trace sniffer, you know, put something physically on the board to read high-speed buses. It's a really cool read as well. It's a bit longer than, of course, this blog post for the PS4, uh, but a lot of the things that came out of his work went into modern console security design. Right. Things like not being able to roll back a firmware update. So right, right. I figured if anybody was interested in this story, they'd probably be interested in that. Right, similar well. types of things going on there. All right, cool. Uh, so let's uh, move over into the internet weather. And since this is kind of our end of year, last show of the year, I thought I'd just kind of take a look at some things that have been some longer term things that happened throughout the course of the year here that we talk about a lot. One of the things I wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about in a while, because we really haven't had to, is uh, for a while we were talking about the zero access botnet. And I was wondering to myself, I was like, gee, I wonder how it's doing lately. I haven't really looked at it. So the interesting, this is a kind of interesting chart because it shows both the birth and I guess kind of the death or the rapid decline of the zero access botnet. So zero access is a click fraud botnet, also gets involved in some Bitcoin mining. So once your machine gets infected, it's doing click fraud and Bitcoin mining and whatnot. But it uses these four various ports for communication. It's a peer-to-peer -peer type of command and control. And this picture here kind of shows those four different ports in four different colors, blue, red, green, and yellow. And the number of scan sources seen hourly for that. So you can see, Back around the April, I want to say like 20th time frame, maybe, or maybe early May, is when everything took off. Prior to that, we saw none of this activity. Uh, and this was in 2012, so it was a long time ago, three years ago, over three years, I guess, right? It really ramped up quickly to like 30,000 scan sources, basically 30,000 bots, but in reality, we don't see the entire internet, so it's probably some order of magnitude more than that. Uh, it did tail down. I didn't mark all the different things. There are a few different organizations and vendors that tried to mitigate this, one of them being Microsoft. I want to say Microsoft took some action somewhere in 2013 here, maybe like December 2013, but they didn't necessarily have the full impact that they desired. But still, in the long run, it looks like some of that activity might have paid off because you can see that there's been a steady decline where it's just drifted off basically into nothing way down here. Um, and the very far right of this chart is current time. So there's still some. I didn't zoom in to see how much there really is here, but I would say there's probably a few thousand or so number of sources here, but nothing compared to its heyday of 50,000 that we had you know, seen way back in the day. So the kind of interesting chart showing a, this is actually a four year picture of uh, how this botnet came to rise and fall, so to speak. Uh, so interesting, interesting little picture. I, I wonder if any of that decline you know, was due to the takedown activity or 
you know, I'm thinking some of the devices that are impacted by this would be laptops, you know, just like this mm -hmm. that you have here. You know, Not I have this one. <laughs> <laughs> laptops is just like this one, <laughs> but less, or more penetrable, I guess. Um, but you know, I I don't really use my PC that much anymore. You know, I have like a tablet or or something else. Well, that's true too. That or it could be people have upgraded. Yeah, and it, like retired those people. machines that were infected, and they never got reinfected and. Things like that. So I wonder how much of it is that. I'm, I'm actually very curious about this picture. It's great to see that this botnet is finally done. Fortunately, I have a feeling that it's been replaced by others. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's nice to know this one is done. I, I'm, I'm very, very curious to, see, to know why it's, it's decayed at exactly that rate. And yeah, I don't have an answer rate? for that, but it would be, uh, I don't know if we could discover that or not, but maybe. You yeah. dig hard enough, you might be able to figure it out. And then I want to show another chart here, and this is kind of hard, so I'm going to show you kind of zoomed in. Brian has shown this chart on previous shows. This is a year in review of distributed reflective denial of service traffic. So what this is is those ports that we see used in reflection attacks. And I listed them down here. It's kind of hard to read in some of these other ones, but you got RPC, NetBIOS, Sentinel License Manager, which really doesn't account for very much, but it's one of these ones that people have talked about. Uh, SNMP, that's the green, the bright green color. 19 UDP care gen, or sometimes char gen, depending on how you pronounce it. 520 UDP is RIP, which is the routing information protocol. There's a few of these routers out there on the internet, like home routers, that for some reason have that enabled where they really don't need to. So we've seen some reflection attacks with that. 53 UDP is DNS. 1900 UDP is that SSDP, which we talk about a lot. That one is actually kind of a lightish purple in here. Uh, there's a dark purple and a lightish purple, but you can see those colors kind of a, uh, account for a large majority of this reflection attack traffic. And then 123 UDP is NTP. NTP, what color is that one? That is a kind of bright blue. So if you look at this uh, picture here, and I'm, maybe I'll go to the next chart here because it's a little bit easier to see. So these bright blues in here, I believe are um, NTP. The purple, dark purple, light purple is your DNS and SSDP. But the thing I thought was interesting, when you go back and look at this chart, you can see there's kind of a, a very regular pattern of blues and greens. You saw some spikiness of, uh, SNMP back in the early 2015 timeframe, but didn't really account for much. And then you could see that since about early October, I wanna say, that it kinda got a little choppy in some other colors in here, notably yellow and red. And that's what I wanted to focus in here real quickly. So when you look at that, the yellow is um, actually, so there's RPC in there. And then um, this red is uh, the 137 NetBIOS stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we saw very much of that before, but you're seeing that kind of poke up its head a little bit more. Again, these volumes are not anywhere near the volumes that we're seeing with SSDP or uh, DNS or NTP that we've seen in the past. But um, it's interesting that some of these other ones are being tried more so now than they had been in the past. Just an observation, I guess we'll see how next year pans out, uh, or as we move into next year, whether that kind of choppy behavior that we're seeing in there uh, continues or changes in shape. All told though, for the most part, 
it's kind of a pretty stable amount. So when you look at going back to the original chart here in terms of the volume of gigabits per second, we're looking at these real high peaks here. Uh, when they occur, it's maybe peaking at 40 gigabits for the highest one in here. But more often than not, you're kind of in this kind of media area of like maybe seven and a half gigabits every day, all the time. When you look at all these different reflective protocols that there's just this various attack traffic going on. And for the most part, this is mostly bad stuff. Uh, there's very little legitimate in here based on how we do this um, analysis here. So, um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of reflection attacks going on um, there's a little bit of a dip, I would say, in the last quarter here where it looks like it's decreased a little bit, especially the uh, DNS and SSDP. Uh, but I can tell you it's not gone. So we see attacks every day, multiple times a day. Not that one person here is getting the 40 gigabits at a time. That's rare. Uh, it's more that, you know, there's many different attacks going on that account or, you know, factor up to this amount of, uh, against many different targets. So because uh, we're looking at the internet backbone as a whole. So uh, interesting kind of chart. I uh, just wanted to share it with people. And like I said, I guess we'll see what happens with this kind of little bit of uh, scuffle that's going on down at the bottom right here and see if that continues. So it'll be interesting to see. So that's our show for today. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can also find the AT&T Threat Track program on the AT&T Tech Channel, as well as on YouTube and iTunes. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. I want to thank you, Jim, Matt, and Stan. Thanks for joining me again today. I'm John Hogaboom. We'll be back next week uh, with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe, and Happy New Year, everybody. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.